Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast. This is designed to help you lead your lives enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I'm your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist, also a keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym. It's your source of all sorts of information related to wellness and positive psychology, my own particular spin on it that I call goal-achieving psychology. And it's also the place to recommend guests for upcoming podcasts. Listeners to the podcasts know that we try to present you with some really high quality guests who not only lead their own lives enthusiastically, but have different ways of helping us to lead our lives in such a way that we can be the best versions of ourselves from a physical and mental standpoint. And we have a really special guest that I've been looking forward to interviewing. Today, we have with us Mariah Heller, who is a fitness industry executive Jim co-founder, author, speaker, and creator of Pain-Free Fitness, which I think should interest a whole lot of us. Mariah spends her days as the executive program director of a million-dollar fitness company, and she spends her evenings as a multifaceted fitness entrepreneur. Mariah is the creator of Pain-Free Fitness and started the company after spending eight years in the fitness industry and realizing that there were no viable solutions for clients with chronic pain. And I'm sure many of us know lots of people who have chronic pain. So apparently the fitness industry was missing a a great bet. So she actually found that not only does it tend to not address the chronic pain patients, but almost any patient who doesn't fit into the classic gym setting. Mariah was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome at the age of 28, and we'll ask her about that, after dealing with debilitating symptoms for a majority of her life. Her mission is to create a health and fitness environment that welcomes and helps people from all walks of life. In the years since creating Pain-Free Fitness, Mariah has expanded the business into a consulting company that also develops business-to-business health and fitness programs and helps train up-and-coming coaches and trainers. She's the author of two e-books and the creator of Fitness Fundamentals Flashcards. It's interesting, a line of flashcards aimed to help fitness professionals add value to their clients. She has been featured on several podcasts and lectures annually at the University of California Davis Entrepreneurship Academy. So uh, as those of us who work in trying to stay as fit as possible will appreciate Mariah's work is both meaningful, important, and I'm so looking forward to having her speak with us. Mariah, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. We're thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here and excited to talk to you. Let's get started then. Uh, first of all, 
I mentioned that your your career took a bit of a turn when you were diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I've done work with Ehlers-Danlos patients, so I have some knowledge of the syndrome, but perhaps uh, just so that we have a background about it, can you give us the short course on what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is? Yeah, absolutely. So Ehlers-Danlos is sort of a collection of connective tissue disorders. I think as of right now, there are 13 different types of Ehlers-Danlos that are known in the medical community. And the type that I have is what's called hypermobility type. So if anybody is listening that knows kind of what connective tissues are, they are everywhere in the body. They're not only in the muscles, they are in the tendons, they're in the ligaments, they're around the heart, they're around the other organs, they're in the skin. So any disorder that largely and kind of systemically affects your connective tissues has a very detrimental effect on your life, right? And kind of depending on what type of Ehlers-Danlos you have, there's certain symptoms that will come about. So for me, I had very easily visible hypermobility, which meant that my joints could pretty much subluxate and dislocate on command. I would have like kind of spontaneous joint dislocations. I would move far beyond a healthy range of motion. I would get tears. Uh, You know, I had a couple hernias. I had my hip reconstructed when I was 20. Like a lot of things like that, where it's like, you just have these these really odd kind of collection of all of these injuries that shouldn't really be happening to such a young person. That's what my experience of Ehlers-Danlos was. And there's, depending on what type you have and kind of the severity, your experience might be very different. But for me, it caused a lot of chronic pain, a lot of hard to explain injuries and just a really tough time for a few years there. I can imagine, which as I'm listening to this, raises the question in my mind, how uh, I'm always interested in people's journeys to being who they are with that kind of a background. How did you happen to get into the fitness industry? It's a great question. And the timeline actually is sort of interesting. So I started to deal with these injuries and this chronic pain when I was 16 years old which is obviously a very young age to start to have chronic pain. I think most of us just don't think of that when we think of a 16-year-old. And when I was about 18, 19, as I was really trying to develop as an athlete, I started to have these issues worsen. And that was the point where I really needed to have a couple surgeries. I was just in so much pain all the time. And none of my coaches and trainers knew what to do with me. I was like a mystery case. They were kind of like, I'm sorry, this is not something I know how to deal with. And then, you know, physical therapists would also kind of treat me like anyone else they had walking in the building. And those, those interventions weren't super helpful either. So that's actually what got me into working as a fitness professional is I had to kind of become my own coach and my own trainer and my own physical therapist for a while. And I said, I don't want anyone else with this type of experience to go through what I've been going through for the last several years. And that's what made me become a professional in the industry. What is it that's wrong with the fitness industry and how do what you do, how does that differ from uh what's characteristically been been done? 
You know, I think the fitness industry is doing a lot of a lot of good things right now and making strides in the right direction. One of the things that I would say is a huge blind spot is empathy in the fitness industry and recognizing that there are people with legitimate chronic pain, for example, right? I had a legitimate thing that was going on with me that because my trainers and my coaches had not experienced it, and maybe they also hadn't uh, had experience with someone else who maybe was going through the same thing, they were almost completely blind to it. So a lot of us in the fitness industry, we have our own box that we stay in, and that's not a bad thing, right? But sometimes it can become a little bit of an echo chamber of, well, this way is the right way. And if you can't do it this way, then you must just be less than, right? (laughs) And I think that's a huge problem in any industry. And so what I do differently is I, I try to make sure that I talk to people and figure out what's actually going on with them and what their goals are and how we can take those two pieces of information and make them align so that they can feel like they're actually winning, right? And not just failing every day because- that's how I felt for several years. I felt like I was just failing at fitness all the time (laughs) and it hurt and it sucked. So I think that's a roundabout answer, but that's how I would answer that. Well, that's really heartening to note. I guess I'm wondering then, how does somebody find somebody like you then? In other words, it sounds like, and, and I know you did state that there have been strides made, but if you walk into a gym and you want to register, if you want to find a personal trainer, you know, assuming that you're not totally healthy and body shape is good and all that, but but that you do have some kinds of issues. How do you go about finding somebody? Because I know there are a lot of people who have tried and gotten discouraged and really are are not doing themselves a whole lot of good from a from a fitness standpoint. Absolutely. And it's a little bit tricky because on one side of that, there is somewhat of a trial and error process with finding the right coach or trainer for you. And the thing that actually came to mind just because of the field you're in, I think it's probably pretty similar to this, you know, finding a therapist or a psychologist that works with you. Like there's something that you have with a certain person that sometimes you have to shop around a little bit for. And so that's kind of, that's one side of it, right? Like, is this person a match for me? Do they speak my language? How, how do I feel after my first kind of meeting with them? Like, if you just kind of feel defeated and like you're less than and you feel worse, that's probably a good sign you shouldn't work with them. As far as kind of, you know, proactive steps you can take, especially if you're dealing with pain or maybe, you know, just feeling intimidated is... A lot of physical therapists have networks of trainers that they work with. And so you could always, if you have a trusted physical therapist or, or if you just, you know, call one up and say, Hey, I know you, you work with people with chronic pain. I'm kind of beyond that, but I would like to find a reputable trainer. Do you have any recommendations for me? There's a lot of networks like that that exist. And then once you actually meet the person, that's where kind of the trial and error happens. So make sure that they are listening to you. Uh, Make sure that they actually ask you what your goals are and they don't make you feel bad about those goals and they don't make you feel like your your pain isn't real or anything like that. So just uh, kind of some some trial and error to go through there for sure. Great. Are there general principles about working with pain patients that uh, we should keep in mind, whether it be through a formal program or even if we're dealing with our own lives and how we handle chronic pain? Yes. Yes, definitely. And 
to caveat that every body is unique as well, right? So there's definitely kind of universal phases that people go through. There is universal experiences that a lot of people have, especially when they're dealing with new pain. You know, if someone's used to functioning a certain way and then they have an injury or they have maybe chronic pain that's kind of been getting worse over time and they can't do the things they used to do anymore. One of the things we have to note as practitioners is that people go through sort of a, a mourning period with that. And I'm sure you you deal with this a lot in your practice as well, but a lot of the initial phases is almost talking people through that and making sure that they know that it's okay to acknowledge that you are in pain and that your abilities today are different than they were a year ago. That's It's good to acknowledge that. After that, I tend to implement what I call the, the four pillars of pain-free fitness, which I think is actually five now. I don't know. I'll count them out as I go. But the pillars of pain-free fitness, which is uh, the first one is perception. And that means how do you talk about your pain? How do you feel about it generally? Are you focused only on the negative? Um, the second is the body awareness. So this is the ability to objectively look at your pain and describe it. Where is it? When do you feel it? What's the quality of it? Is it sharp? Is it dull? What makes it worse? What makes it better? So being able to look at it objectively and describe it that way and almost separate yourself from it, that's the second step. Third is stability. So having control over your range of motion. The fourth is mobility, making sure that you have enough motion to do what you want to do. And then the fifth, yeah, so it's five. The fifth is movement. So putting that into play. Before we quit, I'm going to have you run through those five things again. The of five course. Pillars, because <laughs> I think that's real important. Now, counteracting that to, to some extent is the fact that, you know, pain hurts. And yeah. I guess one of my issues, as I've gotten older and picked up a few pains of my own, I've become yeah. a little more empathic about it. But I know historically in working with, with headache patients, I know that you don't want to be defined as the person is just lying around. But I, I've been in the hospital like once in my life when I had a bacterial infection that went to my back and I, it wasn't fun. And I remember that I could understand that if I found a, a nice, comfortable position, what would be so bad about just staying there, uh, you know, as, and, and then, but I also know I've seen research, meta-analysis and so on, that bed rest is almost never the best answer to anything. But how do you counter the notion that, hey, you know, if I don't do anything, I'm not hurting as much as if I try? Oh, yeah, that's a that is a great question. I don't think I've had anyone ask me that yet. And there's there's a few different things to say about that, right? Like I think as a coach and a trainer, it's important to know what's actually in your scope. So, if there was someone that was dealing with legitimate pain and especially if they know the cause of it, like if they had a bacterial infection that went into their spine, I think it's important for me to be like, hey, I think you need to talk to someone other than me about this first so that we can make sure you're getting the care that you need. <laughs> and that would be my first step, right? Honestly. And if someone is just in excruciating pain and I don't know why, and I don't really know what's going on and they at least haven't been like cleared to move, I want to make sure that they get that clearance first. So that's kind of step zero for me. And I think that's important, especially if there's any fitness or health professionals listening. 
like know what your scope is and when it's going to serve the patient or the, the person better to refer out. After that, there is a phenomenon of kind of how we think about our pain, how we think about movement and how we talk about those things that I think is really important to note. So if I am speaking about my body and my pain, like it is the worst thing ever. And I'm focusing on all of these things that I can't do. And, you know, my, my back hurts, my knee hurts, my head hurts. I used to be able to do all these things and I can't do any of them anymore. And I've gained all this weight and all this stuff, right? The spotlight on that pain is, I mean, it lights up the brain. If you put someone under kind of brain scanning technologies, it just lights up the brain and it becomes the primary thing that you're thinking about. Same is true if you say, well, I feel, I feel a lot better. Like I feel better when I'm laying down than when I try to do something, right? So the first step is changing that perception, kind of like, like I talked about. So what are some things that you can do? Right? And maybe some days that's just practicing your diaphragmatic breathing. Maybe some days that's just taking a walk around the block, whatever it is, but kind of making your personal movement menu and saying, what creative solutions do I have to work around this instead of focusing on all the things that you can't do, because that will help you feel successful. And then the second thing is figuring out how to change your mindset as well about accepting that sometimes like practicing healthy habits is just not as fun as practicing healthy. What Like it's not as fun to exercise as it is to sit on the couch. <laughs> Even for me, it's, I would much prefer to sit on the couch <laughs> than go and do a workout, you know? And so I think there's like some freedom in accepting that as well. So that's a, a very multifaceted approach, but I think it starts with knowing your scope. It starts with your perception. And then it starts with changing your definition of what successful is for you. And that's really great advice. Uh, and I'm sure people will be happy to note that uh, sometimes even the professionals would rather sit on the couch than work out. But uh, yep, <laughs> I suspect the long term benefit is from one is much greater than than from sitting on the couch, which which actually raises another question. And I wonder if you've got any particular thoughts on it. I know when I was growing up, and I'm obviously much older than you, uh, but there there were some wise and community centers, but, the, you know, there were, wasn't such a thing as a, as a gym that you would join. Now, you don't have to walk very far if you live in a, in a city to find, you know, multiple gyms. At the same time, there's there's really an obesity epidemic going on. And it just seems so paradoxical that these things are going on, that there are people who are really committed to being healthier and people who are doing something that, that you know, really can shorten the lifespan. And uh, I, I'm not sure I know the question, but I just was wondering if you have some thoughts on why, how both of these things can be going on at one time. You know, I think when it comes to kind of the the obesity issues and maybe diet culture and things like that something that i have seen consistently in clients working with them throughout the years cuz i'm definitely not i'm not an epidemiologist i don't really i haven't studied obesity on a large scale but i have worked with a lot of people for about 12 years people have a very emotional very addictive relationship with certain foods and certain activities. And I think that with how accessible everything is now and how much media is kind of thrown in our face, it's really easy to ignore what we're actually feeling and say, well, 
I feel really good when I eat this piece of cake. So I'm going to do that. And then, you know, we wind up doing that every day for a couple of years and we wind up in a spot where we're not where we want to be physically. And then we get onto this kind of vicious cycle of, well, now I'm not going to start exercising because I feel like it's too late or maybe I'm embarrassed or I don't know how to get my food issues under control. I don't know how to fix my relationship with food and I'm too far in the other direction. So then you wind up eating more to kind of cope with that. And it's definitely a self-perpetuating thing that I've noticed with a lot of people that I work with. So I actually think emotional and mental health plays a huge piece in the obesity epidemic, like more so than, than anyone's willing to admit. And you throw on top of that the fact that we have some of the smartest scientists in the world working to make food taste better, like working to make food hyper palatable and working to make it more tempting for us to just sit on the couch, you know, by building different apps and different streaming programs and things like that, that we have. There's a lot that is easier about going that way than about walking to the corner and joining the gym, right? There's a whole lot that's easier. So I wouldn't say I know the answer either, but I know that that's something that I've seen play out a lot in my career. Yeah, I think it's it will be a challenge for people in your industry because I think you can do so much to help the the general good of population uh, if we can find a way of, of bridging that gap, which leads me to a somewhat related question. I uh, I often like to raise a question or two about my peers, my age group, when, as I said, we grew up, we didn't have gyms, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of role modeling about, about fitness. And I mean, that, that played out in various areas. I mean, I was on uh, teams from a young age and we would generally show up for the game. I mean, the notion of, and maybe one practice a week, but the notion of weight training, the notion of, you know, cardio during the week, the, the notion of, you know, not injuring yourself and so on. And there was kind of an expectation. You, you play these games at some point, you'd uh, reach an age where you didn't and maybe you'd take up golf or something like that. But there are a lot of my contemporaries who aren't familiar with gyms or fitness or so on. And yet aren't opposed to it. You know, if somebody, you know, 60 or 70 or older uh, decides, I really want to be more fit. I want to live longer. I want a better quality of life as long as I live. But how do I know what to do without hurting myself and without uh, getting discouraged because I tried it and, uh, and I had sore muscles for a couple of days afterwards. So if somebody, man or woman, wants to get into this fitness realm at this point and and they're not used to it and and perhaps they've lived quite a few decades without it where should they begin that's a that's a great question because i feel like there is a really big misconception in the field of fitness and wellness that everybody has to do a certain set of things in order to be healthy and that's one of the hardest misconceptions to break, right? If a new person comes to me and they say, I, I really want to be more fit, but they're afraid to because they feel like that's going to look a certain way for them. And if that's a way that they don't like, then of course they're going to be less likely to actually get started on that path. So 
the first thing that I would probably ask if I had someone come to me and have some of those concerns is I would just ask them questions about what it is they enjoy doing physically. You know, what was a time in your life where you felt like you were the most physically fit and active? What were you doing at that time? And then we can kind of start to build a program around things that this person actually enjoys doing. And then we talk about, okay, maybe you enjoy this, but your body isn't allowing you to do it the way that you used to. So let's figure out ways that we can adjust this to make it work better for you. So I think step one is really reflecting on what is it that I enjoy? Because that's what people are going to stick to, right? If you tell them to do something they hate doing, they might do it for a little while, but it's, it's difficult to kind of maintain that discipline around it. And then the second is, all right, we know that we've got your, your wants. Now let's talk about your needs. How do we need to adjust this around you? And anything that you can do to just get some small wins and feel successful, even if it's just starting with a little bit of walking and you know whatever else we can do, maybe some band work or something like that, that's a win for me. So that that's how I would approach that. Yeah, that's terrific. I uh, think it's so important to try and get people active without building in discouragement from the start. So this is great advice. Let me ask at the other end of the age spectrum. And uh, I know uh, my grandchildren are, are active. They're athletes. They uh, hopefully will stay in good shape throughout their lives because they've, unlike uh, some of us years ago, they have learned how to practice and how to stay shape and so on, uh, even when they're not practicing. But for a young parent or somebody who's a middle-aged parent, but their children aren't going to be, you know, athletes who are, you know, that committed to it, what attitudes, what things should they inspire in their kids? Number one, again, I, I really am concerned about the obesity epidemic, but also proactively. I mean, we know it's not a theory that movement, uh, lifelong movement is, is, you know, good for you. So how do you encourage kids to, to stay with it and become, make activity a part of their lives, even if they don't become a professional like you? It's a great question. And I think a really important one. I have for several years developed kind of the kids and teens programs at, at several gyms that I either founded or, you know, was just a part of. And so I saw kind of a lot of different ways of maybe encouraging kids to be active. And I'll start with kind of saying something that I think doesn't work. And I think what really doesn't work is encouraging the children to tie their identity around a particular activity. So for example, if you have a, a kid that's, that's really into a certain sport like football, that's great, right? But make sure that you're not encouraging them to build their identity around playing football. You want to build their identity around this is something that I do to accomplish the goal of moving well, to accomplish the goal of having social time, being able to, you know, do the things that I want to do physically, being able to be active, which is going to benefit my health. That's an approach that I would take as opposed to here's this thing, this sport that you have to play. And especially here's the sport that you have to play and that you have to win at, because then as soon as those things get taken away, maybe they get an injury or they just graduate school and football's not there to them anymore. 
I see a lot of them get very lost and not understand why they were doing the thing to begin with. So that would be my number one piece of advice is try to teach them how to critically think about the why. Why is it that you're doing this thing? Why is it that we're active? Why is it that we go on walks? Why do you play sports? It's not just because we want you to play sports or go on walks. It's because this is going to benefit your health and this is good for you. That's such great practical advice. And in some ways, it's almost uh, we've gone about 180 degrees from where we started. It's just, just as it's important to not build your identity around your pain or around your Ehlers-Danlos or whatever, your headache, whatever is going on, that it's also that you've got an identity beyond football or baseball or whatever your sport may be at, at any particular time. That's, yeah. you know, it's, it really makes such terrific sense. So much of what you've said is makes such great sense. I know I want to follow more stuff with you. Uh, and I suspect that a number of the listeners will too. So I'm wondering, assuming that they're not in the area of one of your gyms and, and you are on the West Coast, I believe. Yes. Yes, I am. So what about somebody like me listening in saying, geez, this is great. How do I learn more? Any way that people can reach you online, any products or services that you have for, for the community other than your immediate communities? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I, I think there's, there's a number of different ways to contact me. The kind of central hub for that is my website. So painfree-fitness.com. And I do offer individual coaching, but if that's not something you're wanting to take the step forward with, totally understand. I have a couple of eBooks. And if you contact me through the form on my website and just say, Hey, I, I heard you on uh, you know, Dr. Kaiser's podcast. Can I get an eBook? I will send you my pain-free fitness eBook for free. So just contact me there and I'd be happy to get you a free copy of that so that you don't have to purchase one. Oh, that's terrific. And uh, we'll have all this information on the show notes. So if you're uh, if you're driving, get on the show notes and you don't have to stop. You'll still, the information will still be there. That That's really terrific. But once again, it's painfreefitness. Yep. Painfree-fitness.com. Fitness. I knew there was a dash somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> hey, I'll read the show notes too. But I did promise. <laughs> I did promise I would give you the quiz on the five pillars again to see if, uh, number one, if you remember them, and number <laughs> two, to just reinforce it for the listeners, because I think it's really, really quite a profound way of looking at it. Absolutely. So the first pillar, which is kind of the foundation, is perception. The second is body awareness. The third is stability. The fourth is mobility. And then the fifth is movement. Great. You passed the test. Let's hope that we, <laughs> that we all do it, you know, build in those, those five pillars into our own lives. I know that there are many questions that I should have asked but didn't. And as I think about it, I'll, you know, kick myself a little bit. But if you want to save me from that, is there anything in particular that you think really was an important point to uh, get out to the listeners that we didn't discuss? Sure. I mean, I think just kind of expanding on, I think something I sort of touched on, but maybe wasn't clear enough about there's 
always something that you can do. And that's the concept that I call kind of developing your own personal menu of movement. And I would just encourage people to remember that, that even though it's not what you could do maybe a year ago or even a week ago in some cases, there's always something. And so if you can just kind of pick one thing that you can make yourself successful at that day, even if it's just walking or just practicing some breathing or meditation, find just a way to kind of win uh, for a few minutes. And I think it'll have a really profound effect on your life and your wellness. A wonderful way of thinking about it. And I think wins tend to build on each other. And if you have enough wins, you're a winner. And when you start seeing yourself that way, it makes the decision to keep working on this stuff a lot easier than, than you know, if you're trying something, fall short and see yourself in, in a different light than as, as someone who's accomplishing wins. And any movements in the right directions are wins. And I thank you for that. Absolutely. As I'm sure I have conveyed, or if I didn't, I really want to convey how much I appreciate what you've contributed to the podcast, Mariah. It's been an absolute delight talking with you and learning from you and look forward to, to following you in the future. And I just want to express real gratitude for your being on the podcast and sharing from your vast store of knowledge. I'm so grateful that you had me on. I love what you're doing and thank you so much. And hopefully we can chat again sometime. Look forward to it and let's, let's make sure we do it. So this has been another episode of Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser with our special guest and really informative guest, Mariah Heller. Really looking forward to re-listening to it and uh, gaining all the information that Mariah has provided. And that brings another episode of our podcast to a close. Again, this has been Dr. Ron Kaiser. The podcast name is Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. We hope that you will not only listen, but download, comment upon, rate the podcast, and tell others about it. And be back next week for another really interesting guest. And don't forget to visit the website, thementalhealthgym.com, where we deal with not just mental health, but also physical health and social connectedness. If you haven't gotten the book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm, hope that you'll visit Amazon and hopefully get it and see one of the seven keys of rejuvenating that's in the book is a matter of health and fitness. It's really one of the keys. And frankly, it's one of the easiest things to do is because it's totally dependent on yourself as to what you're going to do working out wise, what you're going to put in your body, things of that nature. It doesn't depend on somebody else responding to you. It depends on what you're going to do. And we've gotten some great guidance on what to do from Mariah and look forward to speaking with her again in the future. Look forward to seeing all of you next week. And in the meantime, we're still in a pandemic, so stay safe and, but stay active.